And we're in the final week in this book of Hebrews uh, that we began back in July, and and I hope that that you've been you've been challenged. I hope that you've been encouraged by uh, by this study. And you know, this morning as we were uh, partaking of communion together, I couldn't think but you know, back when this letter was written, it was taken to a church, and this letter was written to a group of Hebrew believers. And I wondered as as they listen to that letter being read to them. I, I wonder if their response may have been something like, you know what? He's right. Jesus is better. He's better than all this other stuff. You know, why don't we get some bread? Why don't we get some wine? Why don't we celebrate the fact that Jesus is better by partaking in the Lord's Supper together? You know, the apostles taught us about this. We remember them talking about how Jesus did this with them. And so, so why don't we, why don't we commune together? I wonder if that's maybe their response to this letter that was written to them on this day. If you remember that this letter was written to a group of Hebrew believers who were struggling in their new faith. They had come to faith in Christ. They had been struggling with this uh, persecution and, and all these things that, were, that, uh, that they were missing. And, and their temptation was to go back. To go back to what they had known from the past. To go back to their Old Testament beliefs the Old Testament sacrificial system, and, and what the writer is doing, if you remember, um, way back in is he's, he's reminding them uh, that Jesus is better. And what he does is he takes, he takes the prophets, he takes uh, Moses and, 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 and Joshua and, and the Levitical law and the priests, and, and he holds them all up to Jesus and, and as they're held up to Jesus, the glory and beauty and splendor of Jesus makes them all pale in comparison to him. And he's reminding them, look, guys, Jesus is better than all of this old stuff that was just pointing forward to Christ. They all fade away before his glory. And so he spends the first four chapters of Hebrews showing them the glory of Christ and how much better it is than the prophets and the angels and Moses and Joshua and the sacrificial system. And we get to chapter 5 and, and he begins to unpack how Jesus is better than the high priest. And in chapter 7 we see him comparing Jesus to Melchizedek who it says was a high priest and a king. And this mysterious character that we never really understand who he is, but, but the writer says, look, Jesus was even better than Melchizedek. He was the final high priest. And in chapter 8, he says, what we're saying is this in verse 1. We do have such a high priest like Melchizedek. We have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. So he says, we have the one and only, we have the final high priest. It was Jesus. 
Then in chapter 10, he says, therefore, brothers, since Jesus was that once for all sacrifice, he says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open through the curtain that is his body. And since we have this great high priest over this house of God, he says in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God for he who promised is faithful. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Got ahead of myself. Verse 24 then says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So he says, look, let's draw near to God. Let's hold unswervingly to this, this hope that we have professed. Remember, we, we confess Christ because Christ is better. He is, he is the final high priest. And so let's hold on to him. And remember, let's spur each other on in this so we don't go back to where we were. And so he set up this, he's explained to the church there why Jesus is better. And in, in chapter 11, then he gives them a list of, of some of the, the great people of faith. It's called the wall of faith. They said, these people trusted God. They trusted him so much that they joined him in a journey. They didn't know where this journey was taking, but they trusted the one who was inviting them in the journey, and they took the journey. They sacrificed him, and he said then, then he says in chapter 12, therefore, as we have considered them, those great, uh, those great witnesses from the past, uh, the heroes of the faith, he says, since we are surrounded by these great witnesses, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run. Let us run with perseverance this race that is marked out for us. Because of all of this, because of the first 11 chapters, let us run the race. And the way we run the race, he says, is we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we run. We run. And then as we get to this final chapter 13, the writer gives us a list of things to do. So he spent a lot of time early in Hebrews giving us the doctrine of this is who Jesus is, this is what he did, this is how it affects you. And then he says, now I need to give you duty. Doctrine and duty, they go together. And he says at the end of chapter 12, he says, therefore, because of what I've just said, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful 
And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And then he goes into this to-do list. In Romans chapter 12, Paul does something similar. He's just given us all of the things that Christ has done and our position in Christ. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Saying because of what Christ has done, this is what you do. And here in Hebrews, he's doing much the same thing. Because of what Christ has done, because he's better, this is your response of worship. You see, when we do, that is worship. Just like it says in Romans 12. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. This is our spiritual act of worship. And now he says, this is how you worship. These are the things I want you to do. He says, in verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Don't forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. What's that all about? Remember those in prison as if they were your fellow prisoners and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were being were suffering you see, Christian living is always a response to something. You worship what you're amazed by. You're overwhelmed by it. And, and as believers, we're, oh, we should be overwhelmed by the gospel. But, but we worship something. Last Sunday, some of you mildly worshipped in your homes. When in the fourth quarter in overtime, the Browns kicker actually kicked a field goal. What was your response? You jump and you shout and you lift your hands. That's a mild form of worship. And I wonder, when we understand the beauty of the gospel, Does it cause us to worship? Does it cause us to be amazed and wonder? Does the gospel cause me to worship? I read a quote from a guy this week that said that God's commands are like railroad tracks. They point us in a direction. He said, the gospel is the engine that moves you along the tracks. And I wonder, are we ever in awe of what the gospel has done? Because what the writer's saying is, because of Christ, we're in awe and therefore we do. And the first thing he says, we practice hospitality. He says, keep loving each other. And what he's talking about is, look, this worship begins in the church, about us caring for each other, about us loving each other. Keep loving each other. 
as brothers. And how good are we at offering this hospitality? How good are we at at surrounding each other and loving each other and supporting each other and spurring one another on? Because, you know, Keith is right. You know, some of you came this morning and your hearts are heavy. You've lost a family member or, or you know, you've got some other heavy thing that you're dealing with. And I think what the church is created for is when we have those heavy things, when we have those needs, We're supposed to be surrounding each other and loving and caring for each other. And if we've been transformed by the gospel, that should come natural. It should be a result of being changed by the gospel. But but I fear that so often that, that we're about worshiping other things, about worshiping our world and, and being in awe of our world, that we forget to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, offer hospitality. Love your brothers and sisters. That's us loving each other. And remember, Jesus said, and we talked about this last week, is, is that the world will know that you are his, we are his disciples by the way we love one another, by the way we show hospitality to one another, by the way we care for each other. When someone in our church family has a death, and we go and we support and we surround them with our love. When somebody has a need, when somebody has a crisis, we're caring for each other. When somebody walks in here on Sunday morning and is down and discouraged because of a tough week, we're there to pick each other up. Now, that takes transparency, and and that takes me being honest and saying, look, I really need you to pray for me this week. So the author says, a part of this worship Part of being in awe of God is is loving your brothers and sisters. But he says, but it doesn't stop there. It, it, It spills over, it spills outside of the church, and it says, don't forget to entertain strangers, people you don't know. Offer hospitality to people you don't even know. But that's uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, for me, who's an introvert, I'm not just going to approach somebody and ask them if they need help, if they, if, if they want, you know, can I care for them? I see somebody crying in a store. Do I want to walk up and say, hey, is there any way I can pray for you? The writer here says sometimes when we do that, you could be ministering to an angel. Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these You've done for me. So we miss opportunities to bless Jesus himself. So we love our brothers. We, 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 we care for those who we don't know. 
And we remember those in prison. We remember those who are suffering for their faith. And I think that's what he's talking about. He's, he's talking about, about the believers who are suffering, those who are in prison because of their faith. Surround them with your love. Pray for them. Do I have a concern for the persecuted church? Do I, do I pray for my brothers and sisters in, in, in other countries, in, in most of the other countries of the, of the world who are being persecuted? Who are going to jail because they believe in Jesus? Um, who, are, who are losing limbs? Who are, who are dying because they confess Christ and were baptized? He says, you, you need to care for them. They're fellow prisoners. You need to care for them. So he says, look, a one response of worship is you, you practice hospitality. He says, then he says in verse 4, he says, and the marriage bed should be honored by all and marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. He says, look, you need to avoid immorality. If you're married then you should never have sex outside of your marriage. Your spouse is the one God gave you, and, and you're supposed to stay faithful to them. As if you're not married, if you haven't been married yet, then you shouldn't have sex. You must stay morally pure. And as followers of Christ who are in awe of the gospel, that should just be a... That can be challenging sometimes. But we do it because we love Jesus. All these things we do because we love Jesus. The first two things he talks about is we're to love other people and we're supposed to be pure. You know, these are two distinctives that the church has. We love other people. We love the poor. We care for the poor. And we believe in purity. You know, Augustine, in his book, The City of God, says that Christians don't fit well in this world because they have a completely different attitude towards sex and money than the world does which are the two most important things to the people in the world. People in the world are, are promiscuous with their beds and stingy with their money. Christians are stingy with their beds and promiscuous with their money. In other words, they hold tight the marriage bed, their purity. But they're generous as Christians. We're generous with what God has given us. And that leads to the next thing in verse 5. He says, we're to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We're supposed to be content. And he says, the power 
the ability to be content is the reminder about Jesus, what Jesus has done, and, and that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. In the Greek, actually, it says, I will never leave you, never will I, never, never, never will I forsake you. It's an adamant, Jesus will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. Therefore, be content with what you have. Keep your eyes on Jesus and not on stuff. And boy, is that hard to do. And there's a survey done of, of, I think, 25 of the wealthiest people in the United States. And, and, and they were asked several questions, but one of them was, do you believe you have enough money to live for the rest of your life? And these are people that, that are worth probably 50 to $100 million or more. And for all of them, they said if they had 20% more, they would be satisfied and think they could make it for the rest of their life. So how much is enough? Just a little bit more. And the writer here says, look, be content because Jesus is enough. Not that there's anything wrong with, with having money and not that there's anything wrong with, with, with being a good steward and, and being somebody that, that God has blessed with the ability to make money. Because God has given you that ability so you can give back. Not to accumulate large sums of money, but so that you can invest in kingdom work. I think the more we invest in kingdom work, the better we understand and the easier it is to keep our lives free from money, from the love of money. Some of us are free from money. This is the love of money. So he says, be generous. So far, we've seen him tell us that we're supposed to, to care for other people. We're to stay pure. We're to flee from materialism. And then he says, we're to honor the church. It says in verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So he says, look, we need to, to worship Christ and work for Christ. And in your notes, I got ahead of myself. You know, he says the way we honor the church in verse 7 is to remember our leaders. Remember those who came before us. You know, the foundation of the Fairlawn Mennonite Church was laid by faithful people 70 years ago. We need to remember and honor them. He says we're to evaluate the church's message. He says we need to be careful in verse 9 to not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. You know, I have a responsibility to teach the Word of God. 
to teach it well, to teach it correctly, to study well so that I can teach it correctly. But you, you have a responsibility as the body to make sure that what I am teaching aligns with Scripture, to be good Bereans, as Paul said, and to test what is being preached. There's a lot of really messy stuff being taught out in the world, just like there was back then. And we can get sucked into these, these wrong teachings that really mess us up. And, and so we need to be very careful. And the writer says, look, guys, be really careful that you don't get sucked into wrong teaching. And as a church, then, back to um, don't get sucked into, into false doctrine and worship Christ and work for Christ. You see, for the Hebrew this whole thing of sacrifice was at the core of, of their worship. But these are new sacrifices that were at the core of the church. He says in verse 15, he says, Through Christ, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So their worship was a sacrifice they were giving up to God the fruit of the lips that confess his name. And don't forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so, so God is pleased when, when we offer up sacrifices, when we, when we worship Christ and work for Christ. When we're like Mary, we sit at Jesus' feet, or, 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 or like Mary, we, we go and we kneel at Jesus' feet and, and we break that jar of, of, of perfume and we, and we get on our knees and we worship and wash the feet of Jesus. There's those times when we must deeply worship him. There's times when we gather together to worship him. But then the writer says, but we also then do good and share. For with such a sacrifice, God is pleased. Because worship coupled with work pleases God. Worship is work. And as a church, we must worship and work together. It's part of our worship. And then he says, in ending this list of to-dos, he says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give account. You know, so, so God has ordained the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Is that right? That doesn't mean... it that the church is led by perfect people. The, the, the God has chosen to use imperfect, broken people who've been transformed by Christ to lead the church. We still make mistakes. But he's placed his spirit in the church in order to, to be his hands and his feet. That, but then you say, but when you say obey your leaders, what do you the way, of course, you're going to say obey your leaders. That mean listen to me? No, not necessarily. But 
he's talking about matters of spiritual direction. He's telling the church here and us today that, that God has ordained leaders in churches. And if this is the church that, that he has led you to and made you a part of, then you have a responsibility to support leadership of this church, to pray for, to encourage, but also to correct. He's given us this responsibility. And, and I always get a little, maybe I shouldn't, it's in the Bible, but I always get a little, little nervous when I, when I read that scripture and I, I stand in front of you and say, look, y'all, you got to obey me, right? That makes me a little nervous. But it also makes me nervous at this, at this last part where he says that we as leaders will give account. You see, one day I will stand before the Lord and I will give account for how I have taught you the things I have taught here on Sunday mornings. I will give account as to how I have led you, where we have led you, how we have carried ourselves. So we, we will give account for the way that we have led. Those are the things that keep you awake at night as a leader when there are hard decisions to make. And so, so what I believe the writer is saying is, look, I've placed these people in these positions. They need your prayer because they're imperfect people. But I've put them there to lead. And so he says, make, make their jobs, don't make their jobs stinky. I don't think y'all make my job stinky. I love my church. I love being here. I feel privileged to be a part of this. But this is a great responsibility that we have, and it's a great responsibility that you have. Together, I believe, we move forward. And we impact the kingdom, but we need each other. You need to trust us, and we need to trust you and empower you to go and do the things, to go and show hospitality to be generous, to honor the church. And we honor the church by serving each other and caring for each other. And then the writer ends this book, and I didn't get nearly through all of my sermon. If you notice in your notes, I got through about half of it. I could do like, Keith, hey, so you guys want to hear another sermon? It's 1215. He ends it with this beautiful um, prayer, benediction. It's going to be my closing prayer. It says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought him back from the dead, brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of his sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, whom be glory forever 
and ever. Amen. Amen. Y'all are invited um, following service to the um, fellowship meal back in the gymnasium that our youth, uh, our young people, they got up like at 6 o'clock this morning to come prepare this for you, so come on back and enjoy it. Have a great week.